The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. It was a cool fall morning in Medford, Oregon, when police picked up three young runaways by the side of the road. 19-year-old Gavin McFarlane, a high school dropout, his girlfriend, 15-year-old Ellen Fryer, and their mutual friend, 22-year-old Russell Pierce Jones, a young man with a criminal record and a history of mental illness. From the back of the police car, Russell made cryptic comments about being the couple's protector. Ellen and Gavin claimed they'd run away because Ellen's parents disapproved of their age difference. Back at home, Ellen's younger sisters had a very different story to tell. Join me now as we delve into the case of Aaron Fryer, a father whose trouble raising a teenage daughter reached heartbreaking extremes. To understand the case, we'll examine three parallel interrogations and the secrets and lies investigators were forced to navigate to get to the truth. Medford is the county seat of Jackson County, Oregon, USA, not far from the California border, with a population around 85,000. And like many cities in the Pacific Northwest, Medford has a long history with logging and railroad industries along with a rugged landscape popular with hikers and campers. Unlike much of the rest of Oregon, it's warm and sunny, with a climate that's almost Mediterranean. But even a town with such a sunny disposition, darkness can find a way to creep in. And on the morning of October 2nd, 2017, two teenage lovers and their friend were running from it. But first, they just needed to make a quick stop at a local Walmart. The sun was barely up when a silver mercury marquee pulled into the parking lot. 15-year-old Ellen Fryer and her 19-year-old boyfriend Gavin McFarlane piled out and went into the store. Their stocky 22-year-old friend Russell Jones hung back outside, smoking from a pack of Camel 99s he'd stolen earlier that morning. Ellen was small and slight, with shoulder-length brown hair. Her older boyfriend, Gavin, was tall and lean, but gave a punkish impression with his black leather jacket, dark hoodie, and a blue beanie that covered his wavy blonde hair. The couple wandered the aisles, collecting everything they thought they might need to run away together. They knew it wouldn't take long before authorities would be out looking for them. After checking out, the couple got back into the Silver Mercury and drove off with Russell. In a plastic Walmart bag, Ellen had everything she thought a teenage runaway might need. Hair dye, Reese's peanut butter cups, microwave popcorn, Mott's medley fruit snacks, and a pregnancy test. 
But before making it very far, Ellen realized she'd bought the wrong hair dye, so she made the guys turn around and head back to Walmart to replace it. It was a risky decision, wasting precious minutes for something so trivial. But Gavin was determined to give Ellen everything she wanted. He'd do anything for her. After making the hair dye exchange, the trio drove to a scenic stretch outside the city called East Antelope Road. They pulled onto the shoulder and looked out over the magnificent natural landscape of Oregon, taking a moment to say goodbye to their old lives. Before leaving, the runaways popped open the trunk of the car, removed a body wrapped up in a blanket, and threw it over the side of the road down a steep embankment. It was time for the next leg of their journey. After driving the car back into town and ditching it on a dead-end road, the trio started walking together on foot. So far, everything was going according to plan. Earlier that very same morning, back at Ellen's father's house, her two younger sisters, Sierra and Olivia, had woken up to realize they were unexpectedly home alone. Checking Ellen's room, they found it empty, but that wasn't exactly unexpected. Just the night before, Ellen had said a cryptic goodbye to her sisters and told them she'd try to come back and see them someday. They knew she was planning on running away, but what they didn't expect was for their father, Aaron Fryer, to be gone as well. The sisters weren't yet high school age, and it wasn't like their dad to leave them unattended. So they checked the driveway. His car wasn't there. Where could he have gone? Maybe out looking for Ellen. The mystery only deepened when the sisters found a dark red stain on the living room couch, right where their father had been sleeping the night before. Terrified, the girls ran down the street to their mother's house not too far away, who made a frantic call to 911 kicking off the search for Aaron and their 15-year-old daughter, along with whoever else she might be with. Yes, that's where he lives. Okay. But there's nobody there right now. I'm just calling because we don't know where my ex has... I don't know where my ex-husband or my oldest daughter is. I understand that. Something happened at the house. <laughs> Something happened over there. Okay. When did your children come to your location? My children came to my location, too. My children came to my house about 15 minutes ago. Okay, and what did they tell you exactly? Their dad's gone, their older sister's gone, and there's blood everywhere. Okay. Something happened at this, uh, something happened at this house, and we don't know where my oldest daughter is. We think she's with the next, with the boy, a boy. Just before 7 a.m., police arrived at Aaron Fryer's home to perform a welfare check. As they went inside, signs of a disturbance was clear. They suspected foul play immediately, but what had actually happened in that house, and specifically on that couch, was anyone's guess. Although police had no clue where Aaron or Ellen could be by that point, the bloodstained couch was an ominous sign something bad had happened. 50-year-old father of three, Aaron Fryer, had a generous nature and a reputation in his neighborhood for always being willing to lend a hand or tool to anyone who needed it. The kind of guy anyone would have wanted as a neighbor. His family and those closest to Aaron believed he was the kind of guy 
anyone would have wanted as a father as well. His girlfriend described Aaron saying, he loved his girls beyond anything. From what I witnessed, Aaron was a great dad. And when it came to his oldest daughter, Ellen, it seemed like he'd done a fine job raising her. She was musically gifted and active in her high school's band. She'd even been a member of the Youth Symphony of Southern Oregon, playing bass clarinet. When it came to her taste in partners, on the other hand, Aaron had some choice words. And now both Aaron and Ellen were missing. After three hours into the search for Aaron and Ellen, police came across their first clue, and a disturbing one. They found Aaron's car, a silver Mercury Marquis, abandoned on a dead-end road about five miles away from his home. About an hour later, around 11 in the morning, police came across three individuals walking down the side of the road about two and a half miles from the abandoned car. They quickly recognized the youngest of the three as Ellen Fryer. With her were Gavin and Russell. Having found Ellen without her father, alarm bells were set off and the trio were detained and brought in for questioning. Police now believed Ellen had been involved in her father's disappearance, somehow. Exactly just how was the pressing question, and the answer had a lot to do with Ellen and Gavin's forbidden relationship. It was at South Medford High School where their paths first crossed, Ellen, a young and impressionable 15-year-old, and Gavin, a rebellious 19-year-old who dropped out of school before graduation. At first, they connected online, but it wasn't long before their flirtatious banter blossomed into something more. Ellen had been through a lot recently. Her parents divorced a few years prior while she was just in middle school, and perhaps predictably, it had kicked off a rocky period in her life. But then Gavin came into the picture, a rebel with a canvas jacket covered in punk rock patches and an anarchy symbol on his chest. And Ellen couldn't help but be drawn to him. Gavin was going through some tough family problems on his own after being kicked out of his stepfather's home and forced to fend for himself until he found a new safe haven, a place where he and Ellen could forget about their problems. And they weren't alone. Russell Jones, a friend of Gavin's, soon became a regular face hanging out at Gavin's as well. And the three of them formed an unlikely bond, three misfits navigating the tumultuous waters of adolescence together. The relationship raised more than a few eyebrows in the high school hallways. As testimonies from friends and acquaintances show, some people thought of Gavin as just a bit of a clown. Others saw red flags. I'm not, I don't approve of him. I just don't like him. I don't get good vibes from him. Mm -hmm. Since I've known him, he's always been like a kid to joke around a lot, so I never really took him that seriously. He has shown a pattern of disregard for authority. He would only act in obedience out of convenience. Um, okay. When he wa wants to do something, he'd do it. If he didn't, he would just say, screw you, I'm going to do my own thing. Usually whenever we see each other, we're, we, how again, we're, we were close. Aside, I didn't trust him in the house. He was sketchy. I, and I, after a week or so, I threw him out. 
he was just an all-around sketchy guy. Like, I'd met him, and the vibe around him was, like, no, bad guy. When Ellen's parents found out she was seeing Gavin, who was four years older, they told her she needed to put an end to it. But Ellen was undeterred, determined to keep their secret relationship going. Ellen started sneaking off to meet up with Gavin, and for a while, she was successful. Until one day, when her father discovered what she'd been doing, and he was furious. In no uncertain terms, Ellen's father warned Gavin to stay away from his daughter, and according to Aaron's sister, he even reported Gavin to the police for statutory rape. For some young couples, that might have been the end of it, but for Gavin and Ellen, it was just the beginning of a grand plan to stay together against all odds. After police found Gavin, Ellen, and Russell walking alongside of the road, they were placed into squad cars and driven down to the station for questioning. Police knew time was of the essence and had three burning questions they needed answered. Where was Aaron Fryer? Was he still alive and hurt somewhere? And why exactly had Ellen attempted to run away in the first place? It wouldn't take detectives long to find the answers to two of those questions. Not long after finding the runaways, a body was discovered 20 miles outside of town, down an embankment off of East Antelope Road. It was Aaron Fryer. Upon examination, the obvious cause of death was blunt force trauma. Aaron had been severely beaten around his head and chest before being rolled up into a blanket. The bloody baseball bat used to inflict the wounds was found nearby the body as well. All of a sudden, the detectives' interviews with the three runaways had become a full-fledged murder interrogation. So you told me you wanted to remain silent, but you kind of, at least if I explain things to you, you'll make a decision from that point on? Yeah. Okay. So this morning, your little sisters ran over to your mom's house and told your mom about something that worried them that they saw in, the, in your house. Okay. And what that was was a large amount of blood. And they described a few things that you had been doing at the house. And um, kind of the way you said goodbye and that it worried them because they weren't sure if they were going to see you again and they love you. And that really worried them a lot about where you were going and why you were leaving so quick because they care about you and they love you. And so that's kind of why we're here is just trying to figure out what, what's going on. You know, do you love your sisters? Yes. You care about them, and you care about kind of how they feel about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody would. You know that? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of that's what we need to hash out, you know? What did your sister see? Why are they worried? Yeah, what did they see? That's what I'm going to ask you. To be honest, I don't have a clue. Mm-hmm. You said that there was a large amount of blood. Mm-hmm. Is everybody okay? That's what we're trying to figure out. That was Detective Stephanie Smith of the Medford Police, speaking to Ellen early in her interrogation. In 2016, Detective Smith was awarded Child Advocate of the Year, recognition for more than a decade and a half helping children who have been mistreated. She'd seen dozens of tough family situations before, and it goes without saying, the current situation with Ellen and her friends being brought in for questioning 
was tense. Ellen, Gavin, and Russell were separated into windowless gray interrogation rooms. Inside one room, Ellen sat handcuffed, hunched inside a pink puffer jacket that made her look even smaller than she was. As she waited to be questioned, Ellen cracked her knuckles and stared blankly at the camera in the corner. When Detective Smith first entered the room, Ellen asserted her right to remain silent. So the detective pressed Ellen to at least give her her name. Ellen responded by referring to herself as Rain. When the detective told Ellen her sisters were worried about her and her father, Ellen's voice sounded almost deliberately childlike as she insisted she knew nothing about the situation. Then, slowly and patiently, Detective Smith teased out a few answers. Do you have a boyfriend? My parents made us break up. Oh, they did? Tell me about that. They just didn't like him. Mm-hmm. How'd you meet him? School. At South? Okay. And so you've been out of school for a bit? Mm-hmm. So you've known him for a while? Yeah. He's moved on. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. But your parents didn't like him? Yeah. How come they didn't like him? I don't know. Well, you must have had some kind of conversation about why your parents don't like your boyfriend. They're, they're just like, we don't like this guy. Get rid of him. They were pretty adamant about it. Yeah. So I wanted to respect their wishes. So what did you do? I ended it. How'd you do that? I talked to him and I let him know what was going on. Mm -hmm. I said, I hope we can still be friends. What was that boyfriend's name? Justin. What's his last name? Can't remember. I wasn't dating him for very long. Maybe two weeks. You don't know your boyfriend of two weeks' last name? It's... no. We could find him in a yearbook, though. Oh, okay. Don't you think? Okay. What grade was he in? He was a junior. Okay, so his name's Justin and he's a junior at South. Well, senior now, but... Very little of that was true. Not only had Ellen switched Gavin's name to Justin, she also told the detective she'd already graduated high school. They were all obvious lies, and Detective Smith knew it. But instead of confronting her about it, she led Ellen to believe, at least for a while, that she was in control of the conversation. One thing that became immediately clear was the ease in which Ellen lied straight-faced about insignificant details. Only increasing Detective Smith's suspicions, Ellen had some sort of responsibility in her father's murder. It also put into question anything else Ellen said, including what she'd say later about her father, even the claim he'd been abusing her. My parents are very controlling. Yeah. My dad is very abusive. Mm -hmm. In what way? Verbally emotionally and a few times he would grab me when I did something that he didn't like he would grab me right here and he'd pin me against the wall mm-hmm. and then what would happen and then my little sisters would freak out and then he'd stop who's your dad Aaron Fryer okay when's the last time that happened the last time uh, about two weeks ago what were the circumstances that led up to that he was drunk okay he's a heavy drinker mm-hmm and he owns a lot of guns, it's not a good mix. Mm-hmm. Detective Smith and her fellow investigators knew they couldn't simply take Ellen at her word, but the abuse allegations were a bombshell they couldn't ignore either. So what was being said or what was being done or 
what happened to lead up to him putting his hand on you? I honestly don't know. I'd like to know that myself. Well, I don't have that answer because you were the one that was there. We need know. help from you to figure that out. I don't know what was going through his mind. Well, like I said, he was drunk, but he's done it sober as well. But what words were being said? Like, you, whore, bitch, slut. Mm-hmm. And so what, what led up to him using those words? I have no idea. It's very da emotionally damaging mm -hmm. to hear your father tell you that. Mm -hmm. Where were you when that happened? At his house. But where? The living room. Okay. And who all was there when that happened? Just me. After school. I thought you said your sisters were there. Yeah, sometimes I go. we go over there by ourselves. And we just want to get away from the other two. Having two younger sisters is stressful. Mm -hmm. Everything's an argument. <sighs> mm -hmm. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. If Ellen was guilty of murder, they needed to find out if she'd done it to escape an abusive household, or if she was hiding behind the only excuse big enough to match her crime. Later, Ellen's friends would vouch that Ellen had claimed her father was abusive, but they were also quick to point out that Ellen wasn't always the most trustworthy person in the world. Gavin, on the other hand, was more than ready to corroborate her account. So about how long ago, four to five months ago, is when you first learned about Ellie and her dad? Or no, she, I started learning about the abuse and I witnessed some of it from her mom. And I know her mom would sit in front of the fridge and not let her let let any of the kids get food. I know that her dad would his his slapped her. Her dad's an alcoholic. And he goes and like and he's and she said that he's beaten her and locked her in the bathroom before and stuff. Has she ever so, told you that anything in regards to molestation? The sexual thing that was just recently. That's what set me off. Although Gavin dressed like a bit of a tough guy inside the interrogation room, he came across as something else entirely. In fact, of the three friends, he was the meekest and the most cooperative. Gavin described several instances of physical abuse to detectives, claiming Aaron had been sexually abusing Ellen. He also told detectives that Ellen's dad had threatened him at one point with a gun. Aaron told he's helped me get a gunpoint before. He's he what? He's threatened my life and helped me a gunpoint before. Aaron has over at his house. Mm -hmm. And well, no, not at his house, but like. And then there was one time he came over banging on my door because he was all mad. Cause, At your house on 26 Almond? Yeah, How long ago was that? Yeah, that was... I, I actually called you guys for that because I was like, I didn't want to go out the door, look out the window, or see anything because I didn't know if he had a gun or not. But How long ago was that that you called us? I think it was a month ago. Did the officer talk to you? Yeah. Did you know if that officer made a report on that? It was that? Officer Cook. Officer Cook came yeah. to the house? I what, did you tell officer, what did you tell Officer Cook? I told him that he came banging, screaming on my door, that he was going to kill me, to open the door so he could pull my head off. Uh, but you didn't see a gun? No. Gavin firmly believed Aaron had been abusing Ellen, which is why they planned on running away together. But when Ellen told Gavin, just two weeks earlier, that she thought that she was pregnant, they bumped up their timeline. If Gavin and Ellen were going to pull it off, they knew they needed help. That's where Russell Jones came in, the 
third conspirator. The oldest of the three, Russell claimed to have started some sort of protection business for at-risk runaways, and that by helping Gavin and Ellen to get the hell out of Dodge was just the kind of mission he was looking for. Acting as the group's mastermind, Russell planned their escape down to the smallest detail, jotting it all down in notebooks, including a contingency plan in case things went sideways. He thought Gavin and Ellen should lay low inside an abandoned house in Medford until the heat died down, enough time for them to safely escape into California without being noticed. And once their plans were all in place, they put them into action. By this point, there was little doubt in the investigators' minds that the three of them had been responsible for Aaron Fryer's death, but they still needed to know exactly what happened inside that house. Detectives were closing in on the truth, but Ellen was being cagey, combative, and uncooperative. Gavin presented himself earnestly, while framing himself as merely a kid with good intentions. Meanwhile, Russell in interrogation room 3 was something else entirely. He was talking a lot. You do know I know you're listening, right? So listen here. Ellie Fryer is my client, my protectee. I would like to see her asking, being polite. It's clear from Russell's tone of voice that for some reason, he actually believed he had the upper hand in the situation. Now here's the thing. I know the cop's twisted little pathetic rule game. And actually, sometimes I like to think that I invented the rule book. Now, I'm not exactly bragging, but uh, cops like to twist evidence. Here's the thing. I use reverse psychology, which makes me be able to make you think it's not Gavin, but in fact, your own kid. By reverse psychology, making you look like the lunatic. So, we can play it the easy way or the hard way. I'm talking nice. Russell then went on to start making a list of demands. So, Ellie is to be handed over to me as soon as you guys can uh, get her here. Two, Gavin is released so that when Ellie's kid is born, it can have a father. Three, all charges are to be dropped and every recording due to that is to be destroyed. Listening to these clips of Russell gives us a glimpse into just how eccentric and delusional he really was. But if you were watching the footage of this interrogation, then you'd already know that Russell's performance was even more unhinged than it sounds. Because Russell was saying all of this without a single person in the room. Just him. So, we can do this the nice way and we negotiate or we can do it the hard way and I can release my bipolar. Which actually, you don't really want that. Make a deal, or I let out my bipolar. Your choice. Wearing a black tank top and a pair of baggy canvas pants, 
Russell's expression switched unpredictably between a goofy grin and a glower, as if he was imitating a diehard villain when issuing demands. Needless to say, police listening in and watching the cameras weren't exactly mesmerized by Russell's performance. At times, Russell stood and flexed his way through imaginary karate moves as he rambled. Police hoped Russell might just incriminate himself while the tape was rolling. What they actually got was just plain odd. Five little piggies eating at the trough. E-I-E-I-O. Wait, no. Wrong one. Uh, three little monkeys jumping on the bed. Um, wait, no. Back in Gavin's interrogation room, detectives were starting to make progress. Gavin admitted that he and Russell had gone over to Ellen's father's house around 2.30 in the morning to help Ellen escape. According to him, he climbed through Ellen's bedroom window while Russell stayed outside, ready to lend a hand if things went south. Soon the couple were passing Ellen's things through the window to Russell, including a guitar, a pellet gun, and a makeup kit. Unusual baggage to take along for a daring escape. At some point, Aaron was startled to wake off the couch by the noise coming from Ellen's bedroom. So Ellen walked out of her room and told her father the noise had just been her getting up to go to the bathroom. For a brief, tense moment, Gavin hid silently in Ellen's bedroom, listening as Aaron told Ellen to stop scaring him. He admitted he'd already been a bit jumpy because of a previous break-in attempt at their home. What Aaron didn't realize was the noise he believed had been a break-in attempt the previous day had actually been Gavin and Russell sneaking into Ellen's window. Nervous that whoever had tried breaking in the day before might try again, Aaron decided to sleep on the couch with a baseball bat beside him in case he needed to defend himself. After his brief conversation with Ellen, Aaron fell back asleep on the couch. For the next three hours, Ellen and Gavin stayed quietly in her bedroom until they were absolutely certain Ellen's dad was asleep. But the perfect opportunity to escape never came. Around 5.30 in the morning, Gavin claimed they were making a last-ditch effort to escape when Aaron woke up. You go out to, um, you're getting ready to walk out the door, and you have the bat in your hand? And where is RJ and Ellie at this point? They're both outside. RJ is already making sure everything in the car is ready to go. Okay. And then he starts to wake up, and I just acted on instinct. Okay. Tell us what happened. I just swung the bat downwards. It was dark. I couldn't see. So, and I, I don't know what, what I was doing. How many times do you think you hit him? Five or six, maybe. Five or six times? Yeah. And when you say that, how do you know he was waking up? I heard him, I heard him say, who, who is that? Who are you? So, okay. yeah. And did that cause you to swing on him at that point? Mm hmm Was he still on the couch? Yeah. Okay. And then I heard him say, like, what the fuck? And then, like, I just kept hitting him until like until he stopped and I heard like gurgling and I was like what what's going on? And there was Gavin had just confessed to murdering Aaron Fryer. At first, Gavin made a few half-hearted attempts to justify why he'd done it. 
it was just an unfortunate accident or self-defense. But once he'd incriminated himself, the only job left for police was to establish if it had really been a crime of passion, as Gavin was claiming, or premeditated murder. But when detectives pressed Gavin on the issue, he confessed that murdering Aaron had always been part of the plan, or at least Ellen's part of the plan. Were you upset? Uh, I guess what I'm asking you is, did you... Did I was upset. So, let me ask you this. Just, you're being very honest with us, I can tell. Was it ever talked about between you, Ellie, and RJ to, for you to hit him with, in, with the bat? Was that ever discussed prior? I, I didn't want to kill her. I didn't want to kill her. Right, but why not at 4.30 when you know she has the keys, why not just everybody go out the window and leave? Was there something that you decided to do at a, cer a certain point during the night? Ellie wanted, Ellie hates her parents. She doesn't want to go back there again. She, want, she wanted him dead, but I didn't want to kill him. And I was like, I'm not going to kill him. Gavin insisted he never intended on going through with murdering Aaron, even though he claimed that's what Ellen wanted him to do. But then, Aaron woke up while they were trying to leave. Gavin weakly blamed the dog for alerting Aaron as they tried walking out the front door, stating it caused Aaron to wake up and call out, Who's that? But no matter how much Gavin tried, there was still one giant gaping hole in his story. Why hadn't they just snuck out through Ellen's window to make their escape? To detectives, it seemed, the only reasonable explanation for Gavin even going into the living room in the first place would have been because he intended on murdering Aaron. Moments later, Gavin finally told the truth. Is it possible that he might not have said that and you just hit him while he was asleep on the couch? I don't remember. Are you 100% sure he said who's that? Or could you just be telling me that, thinking that, trying to minimize this, making it look a little better? Because... Yeah. I just hit him while he was asleep. Okay, so let's, if you're going to tell the truth, let's tell the truth all the way, okay? okay was he awake when you hit him? No. Yes or no? No. Okay. After 45 minutes of interrogation, the detectives finally got Gavin to admit what he'd done. He'd bludgeoned a sleepy man in the head with a baseball bat. With Gavin's confession now in hand, investigators looked to the other suspects to help fill in the gaps of the story. Based on what you've heard so far, you might expect from Russell's wild ramblings in the interrogation room that he'd lived a hard life, and you'd be right. He was autistic, claimed to be bipolar, and at times throughout his life had been homeless. This also wasn't his first experience with the police. In 2014, Russell had been convicted of third-degree sexual abuse involving a child younger than 16. But somewhere along the way, Russell had built up a self-image as a man who'd do anything to protect the vulnerable. In 2011, he marked himself on Facebook as enrolled in the School of Victim Helpers, and four years later updated it to say he'd graduated. By 2017, Russell was openly advertising himself as someone who could help victims in vulnerable situations. He posted things like, whoever needs help, 
I will help. Contact Mike the Protector, the alias he used online. Why Russell became obsessed with this persona is anyone's guess, but it's been suggested that Russell himself may have been a victim of abuse. Or perhaps this was his attempt to make amends for the crimes he'd committed himself. After watching Russell's monologue in the interrogation room for nearly 40 minutes, detectives decided to walk in and speak with him. They had no idea what to expect. Shockingly, Russell was cordial and cooperative. Once detectives let Russell know what Gavin had confessed to, Russell began speaking freely, revealing their plans to detectives. So we headed over. He went through the gate. Because we were going to go we through... We talk about he the, again. Uh, Gavin. Okay. And uh, he went through the gate, went through her window. I followed shortly after. Kind of nervous about it, but it is what I do for a living. And... Um, so I followed, I stayed at the window. We were loading bags out and stuff. Um, and we got all the bags loaded out and she said that she's gonna grab the keys and pull the car around. Um, while Gavin, I say, talks to the guy, but that's far from. By observing and listening to Russell, one thing became perfectly clear. If Ellen had told Russell her father was abusive, it wouldn't have taken much convincing to appeal to Russell's delusions of grandeur. On the other hand, his behavior was so erratic, interrogators questioned his ability to understand his own actions. Well, you told us that you were a high-functioning yeah. autistic? Yeah. Okay. So do you know the difference between right and wrong? Uh, sometimes. Would it be wrong to kill someone? Well, see, here's another trick with that. Um, what's to say that it's wrong to kill someone in self-defense? Okay, but, but what if so? This killing is, is killing. So, but what if this isn't self-defense? Uh, self-defense would be if her dad came at him. Right, and there's no evidence versus of that him getting mad that her father Aaron tried to sleep with his daughter. Okay. Do you think? So, it, do you think it would be wrong to kill somebody? to kill somebody that's sleeping with their daughter. It's not lawful for fathers to do that with their kids. But is it lawful to kill them over it? I had no intention of killing them. Okay. I might have talked about it, but that's it. Right. I wasn't. Would you consider yourself an intelligent person? Uh, to some degree, because okay. I do have some flaws. That long pause was just one way Russell showed an ambiguous sense of reality. It was clear he believed Ellen's abuse story and had participated in the crime, but whether he understood the severity of it, not so much. Although Russell and Gavin sometimes backtracked and said they never meant to go as far as it had, they always knew murder was on the table. And out of the three of them, Ellen was the most in favor of the lethal option. Did Ellie ever come out and say he's going to take a bat and, and do this tonight? No, uh, she just said that she... Gavin says that she handed him the bat to yeah. go do it. Did you see that? No, I did not. What'd she tell you when she came out? Uh, she said that she's going to go around the uh, block, grab the car, 
give the signal and Gavin would go take care of business. With Russell now cooperating, as well as Gavin, it was finally time to go back to Ellen, armed with everything they'd learned so far. Detectives knew her childish innocence routine was all an act and that she was all too aware about what had happened to her dad that night. They knew she pushed Gavin to do it, with the allegations of abuse and a baby on the way providing the motive. It was later discovered that Ellen had, in fact, never been pregnant. Now that Detective Smith was aware of the other suspects' confessions, she had enough to challenge Ellen directly on her lies, which made her attempts to dig in her heels seem downright deranged. At one point, Detective Smith brought in some paper and crayons for Ellen, which seemed a bit juvenile for a stone-faced teenage murderer. As Ellen doodled, she continued changing her story over and over again. The only story that seemed to remain consistent was Ellen attempting to always bring the conversation back around to her father's abuse. At one point, she even accused her father of possibly drugging and raping her. The crimes Ellen listed were abhorrent, but at the same time, she undermined her own credibility with her continuous lies with other details. When Ellen finally couldn't deny the murder any longer, she blamed Russell, or Mike as she sometimes called him, for the attack, claiming he'd murdered her dad with a machete. So, your dad, that all that blood at your house, that's your dad's. And I know you know that. That, that part is not in question. All of that blood that your sisters walked in on is your dad's blood. I know I'm not telling you anything you didn't already know. What Russell is attacked on? my father. Okay. And his bloody machete is over by the Northern Walmart. Okay. Soon afterward, Ellen began insisting she never had sex with Gavin and was immediately caught in a lie because she bought a pregnancy test that morning. The interrogation dragged on for hours, but in the end, when none of Ellen's lies and diversions satisfied the detective, she resorted to the truth. So then do you guys kind of regroup and have a conversation about what to do next? Yeah, we were going to wait for him to fall asleep, and I would be out getting the car while he did it, and he would unlock the front door and have RJ help him drag the body out into the trunk. Okay. And that's the kind of stuff you were talking about. Mm -hmm. When the dust from all the interrogations had finally settled, and with a little help from forensic evidence, police were able to piece together a picture of what they believed really happened in those early morning hours of October 2nd, 2017. During one of their first get-togethers, when Ellen was sneaking out to be with Gavin, the trio drafted a scheme to eliminate Aaron from the equation, scrolling notes and sketching floor plans in a battered notebook. In these notes, police found a premeditated plan to commit murder, written in black and white. As part of their action plan, Gavin commandeered some latex gloves from a restaurant he worked at to try and hide his fingerprints. And Russell really had brought along a machete, as Ellen claimed, but when they showed up at Aaron's house in the early hours of October 2nd, Russell stayed outside while Gavin climbed in. Ellen said the disturbance that had startled Aaron and woke him up occurred when she had to use the bathroom. 
In fact, the noise had come from Gavin kicking a garbage can on his first attempt to sneak over the couch to murder Aaron. His second attempt, three hours later, was successful. After the deed was done, Ellen went back inside to fetch her dog. That meant she would have seen her dad's bloody body on the couch. And in Gavin's account, she didn't react much beyond taking some cash out of his wallet. Russell, on the other hand, had a stronger reaction to seeing what Gavin had done to Aaron and needed to take a trip to the bathroom. Before heading out the door, Russell grabbed Aaron's pack of Camel 99s and then helped Gavin wrap his body in a blanket and load him into the trunk of Aaron's car. During this whole series of events, Ellen's sleeping sisters had heard some suspicious noises at one point, but ultimately remained oblivious to what was really happening. After driving off in Aaron's car, the fugitive stopped at a local Walmart to buy snacks, hair dye, and a pregnancy test, all while Aaron's body was stashed in the trunk. At the spot they planned to get rid of Aaron's body, Ellen, Gavin, and Russell admired the view before the guys heaved Aaron over the embankment. Ellen chucked the baseball bat over the edge after him. The words she used to describe the aftermath an adrenaline rush. Of the three conspirators, Gavin was the first to go down, pleading guilty to murder, as well as charges of conspiracy to commit murder and tampering with evidence. In 2018, Gavin received a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years, longer than he'd been alive up to that point, as a local newspaper pointed out. Russell wasn't sentenced until 2021 and pleaded no contest on the charge of conspiracy to commit murder, as well as attempted robbery in the first degree. A friend who'd once taken Russell in argued, Russell's appearance and way of speaking hid the limitations caused by his autism and that he deserved more consideration in sentencing. Ultimately, Russell was considered capable of understanding his actions and given a 15 years prison sentence. For many, Ellen's sentencing was the most haunting. She'd been charged as an adult and pleaded guilty in 2019. For her sentence, the judge handed down 25 years for conspiracy to commit murder and conspiracy to commit burglary. She would serve the first few years in a juvenile facility. At her sentencing, Ellen read a statement she'd prepared. Wearing a blue dress and tortoiseshell glasses, she already looked much older than she had at her first interrogation. Her hand trembled as she read from the page. I would first like to say that I'm sorry for all the pain that I've caused to others through this whole ordeal. Sometimes the hardest part isn't letting go, but allowing yourself to start over. You can't erase the past or even change it. We can carry the past on our shoulders and we can start over. Each day I wrestle with PTSD and suffer through horrendous flashbacks of the abuse I have allowed myself to endure at the hands of my father. But I am learning to let go of the stifling fear, pain, and scars that negated my well-being for so long. This is truly a sad situation in which everyone got hurt and we all still feel the effects in some way. Noticeably absent from Ellen's statement was any ounce of remorse for her father. And because guilty pleas don't go to trial, 
Ellen's allegations of abuse at her father's hands were never proven in court. While there were accusations of abuse made by Ellen, it's crucial to recognize that without a trial, the veracity of those allegations remains uncertain. In Ellen's interrogation, there was at least one moment where Ellen seemed to be honest, at least with herself. It was when her story began to fall apart and the net was closing in around her that she said, I just feel kind of empty. My whole life is like a bottomless pit, never really fulfilled. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, Clueless. Something is creeping don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless. The Long Con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter using the handle, at MadnessPod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>